I looked over at John just then, and if you're thinking, John who? Uh, John Elliott, my son. Uh, some of y'all, probably, you probably have all met my, my family by now, but I looked over at John just then. I said, John, you want to preach for me? He goes, nah, you got it. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but I know who's got it, and that's the Lord. So uh, if you have your Bibles with me, I hope you do. Turn with me over to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 today. I need to say something before I forget it, because um, I'm prone to forget this. Uh, for some of you that were coming at 4 o'clock today for our Sunday school teachers meeting, uh, I need to postpone that from today, and I can tell you um, why I need to do that later on, but just uh, you've got the afternoon off if you're coming for that meeting at 4 o'clock. You don't have to, so you can, your nap can be a little bit longer, if you will. Well, let's get into God's Word. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to be here this morning, but then we're also going to be in Psalms chapter 22, so be prepared to go there as well, because we're going to probably spend a good portion of our time in Psalms chapter 22, in addition to Matthew 27. Uh, we've been in a sermon series called Words from the Cross, and we've looked at the different sayings Jesus said while he was on the cross, dying on the cross for my sins uh, and for yours. The very first statement Jesus said, I called it a word of forgiveness, if you will, because Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And one of the things I keep reminding you is that it's not something he just said once, but over and over again, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I, I wish, well, I almost said I wish I could have been there to hear how he said it. But I don't know if I would have wanted to actually see visibly what he was going through. But the first statement was a word of forgiveness. And then the second statement Jesus said from the cross was a word of salvation when he looked at the repentant thief on the cross and he said, today you shall be with me where? In paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then last week we looked at a third statement that Jesus said from the cross and he was looking at his mother Mary who was there and he was looking at John, the disciple that he loved, or John likes for us to say that, hey, I'm the disciple of Jesus. Loved. He loved all of them, but there was a special relationship that they had and when Jesus looked at Mary and he looked at John he says woman behold your son son behold your mother and history shows us that John just did that until Mary died uh, John loved on her and he took care of her and that's the word of provision and then today we're going to look at one of the most famous words if not the most famous words or sayings that Jesus said from the cross and I call it a word of suffering some of you know what it's like to suffer. Some of you know what it's like to go through some difficult times. You know what it's like to go through some hard times, such as um, some of you have walked this walk before. We don't wish it for anybody, but you know what it's like to lose a child. That's not how it happens or supposed to happen, is it? You know, we're supposed to go first as parents, but some of you know what it's like to lose a child. Some of the, one of the hardest things I've ever done as a pastor was I was green right out of seminary, serving my first church um, on the poor man side of Lake Murray, I like to say. And uh, I, I remember it vividly, like it was yesterday. I mean, that's how vivid it is in my mind of where I was on the, uh, on the waters of Lake Murray, on the banks there of Lake Murray, near where we were living, where we were serving. And I was there just to, remember we talked about last week, the ministry of presence? And I was just there with a guy named Sam. And Sam was old enough to be my dad. And um, he was my RA leader at my first church. 
Uh, my two boys at the time were in our race with Sam. Uh, Sam had a son that was my age that in relatively, you looked at him, he looked like he was in good health. Um, but he was swimming from one island to another there at Lake Murray. It didn't look like a far distance for him and he had a heart attack while he was swimming and he drowned. And I vividly remember like it was yesterday me being there on the banks of Lake Murray at that particular spot just being there with Sam. Some of you know what it's like to lose a child. Some of you know what it's like to go through hard times such as a divorce or the death of a spouse. Some of you know what it's like to go through sufferings um, when it comes to diseases that you or loved ones have um, gone through in your life. Some of you might be going through some tough times right now and if you're going through seasons that are hard right now, if this is a season that is hard, don't do it alone. You know, get with me, uh, get with one of your staff here, get with your small group, get with somebody. Don't go through a season that is hard and a season of suffering alone. Maybe for some of you, your hard season is just job-related, you know? Um, doesn't our jobs kind of wear us out every now and then? I mean, you know they do. That's why we're thankful for Fridays, right? Because <laughs> uh, we get a little respite from that. And maybe for you, your job is just not what it's cracked up to be and it's gotten worse maybe because of your faith in Christ it's gotten worse and you find yourself the butt of the jokes at the water cooler instead of people talking about sports at the water cooler or where they're going out to eat they talk about you and it's just really making it difficult for you to enjoy your work and you're going through a season that's hard maybe your hard times maybe your season of suffering has to do with your children right now right I mean, maybe your children, they're, they're doing things that are just totally contrary from how they were raised. And you say, well, Lord, I've raised them by the book. I've done all I could to show them what it's like to live for Jesus Christ and to love his church and to love his word and to love you. But, but Lord, they're doing things that they, they never should be doing. And Lord, it's, it's breaking my heart. I've read this Dobson's Strong-Willed Child. I've read Kevin Lehman's How to Have a New Kid by Friday. Y'all read that too? Some of you have? Yeah, it, I mean, I really want to be a good parent. And, and I've read all that stuff, but just a few weeks ago, I was with a, with a preacher. Because more, you know, I, I want us to be a blessing to preachers. And I want to be a blessing and an encourager to preachers. I hope I am. Gosh, Carson, I mean, I really do want to be a Barnabas. I want to encourage people, especially preachers. But um, I was with a preacher a couple of weeks ago. He's like, you know, the church has always been good to me. The church has been good to my kids, but they have nothing to do with the church right now. And I wonder, why is that? A, a verse I cling to is 3 John 1, verse 4, and it says, nothing gives me greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. So if you ever wonder how you can pray for me or how you can pray for people that have kids, you know, your kids, your grandkids, pray that that they will walk in the truth of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm in the crosshairs of Satan. Y'all ever feel that way? You know, Satan knows where to push us, right? He knows what buttons to push. He does in my life. Can I get a witness? I mean, I mean, he really knows what buttons to push in my life. And one of the buttons he pushes a lot, asked Tina, is he has me question my parenting skills. And I'm glad that, you know, my kids are here with me today, but, but it really has me question my parenting skills. Satan does. And, and I have to remind myself 
so, so I'm reminding myself right now and I'll remind you as well. My kids are really not my kids. They, they belong to him. Your kids do too, by the way. But for a season, he gives them to us for a little while and we're to do all we can to show them Jesus Christ in us. Well, I say all that to say this. God knows what it's like to suffer. Never feel like you serve a God that doesn't know what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to suffer. He sent Jesus to the earth and he experienced suffering in every way, shape, or form. He especially experienced suffering and hard times on the cross. So, so take heart. He is not a God that watches us from a distance. Bet Midler. Bet Midler. Bet Midler. <laughs> used to sing a song y'all know the song i'm not going to sing it thank you jesus she used to sing a song god watches us from a distance that is a chick flick song if i've ever heard one it's also bad theology because we do not serve a god that watches us from a distance he is intimately involved in our life i mean that's why he sent jesus right so let's turn to jesus and see what he tells us today from from matthew's gospel So I hope you found it, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, and here's what the text says. Matthew 27, verse 45, the events taking place here on what we would call Good Friday, from the ninth hour, from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon is the time frame here. And boy, I can go off on a tangent here, but I'm not. (laughs) But I could really go off on a tangent here about why the hour, how they know the hour is that particular hour. But anyway, for another day. Verse 45 of chapter 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me let's pray heavenly father i thank you for your word today thank you heavenly father that uh, you've got a word for every person that is here because all of us lord knows what it's like to uh to suffer and go through seasons of suffering to go through hard times and lord if i'm speaking to somebody and as i'm looking at my church family that's gathered here today as some of them have, may have no idea what it's like to go through seasons of suffering, but, but they will because it's life on this side of heaven. And life isn't perfect on this side of heaven. So Lord, um, show us where you were today that, um, that we have a God that, that watches us intimately. He knows us personally. Uh, you are a God that can identify with us even in our suffering. So Lord, um, speak to us now as we give you our minds, as we give you our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? So we're talking about a word of suffering today. These words are few, you know. I mean, the text that I just shared with you, just very, very a short passage of Scripture. We could have read longer, but, but very, very few words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Few, few words, but man, aren't they deep? Sometimes the most deepest things you can say are when you just, you know, you, you compact it. In just a few little words here. And, and there's some things I want you to unpack when we think about this statement that Jesus made. And the first thing I want you to think with me is I want you to get, just get a picture of the sin. 
get a picture of our sin get a picture of Jesus being on the cross for our sin if you have your Bible still open and I pray that they are look again at verse 45 now from the six hours there was darkness I mean there was a physical darkness but can I tell you something there was a spiritual darkness as well over over all the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me so darkness covered a hill called Calvary for some three hours if not all of Jerusalem if not all of Israel if not all over the world there was darkness Spurgeon talked a little bit about him last week you know the prince of preachers Spurgeon put it this way he said it was midnight at midday so when, it was, when the sun should be the brightest there was darkness over the, over the world now it was not an eclipse you say well how do you know that because people a whole lot smarter than me astronomers have confirmed that around the time of Jesus's crucifixion the moon was the farthest away as it could be from the sun so this was not something that was natural this was not a natural darkness if anything this was a supernatural darkness the sun refused to shine on Calvary because the son of God was bearing the sins of the world he was bearing the sins of the people at Sheraw First Baptist when he was on the cross. And at this particular moment, um, creation, if you will, was revolting against what was happening against the Creator. And, and I, I believe that this physical darkness, and, and you probably know where I'm going with this. In fact, I would dare say you probably agree with me 100%. This physical darkness was symbolic of the spiritual darkness that was being laid upon Jesus. The Bible in, in both Testaments, Old and New, refers a lot to spiritual darkness. Uh, these, these passages aren't on the screen, so if you take notes, I'm, I've got a lot of scripture I'm going to share with you today. Proverbs 4, 19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what they're stumbling over. Y'all ever stumbled over anything in the dark? Oh, but I mean, I have, that's why I make sure before I go to bed tonight, the pathway is clear between my bed and downstairs where the, where, the, where the kitchen is because when I get the call to go to the refrigerator for some milk and Oreos, I don't want to stumble over anything in the dark, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what it's like when you're walking in sin. You're just walking in darkness. Jesus spoke of darkness a lot. In fact, Jesus said that hell is a place of darkness. We read in Matthew 8, verse 12, that while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness... In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only is that bad enough, it's a place of darkness. And then Jesus commanded his followers, hey, don't live in spiritual darkness. And, and this is what he said over in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> and whoever follows me shall not walk in, guess, darkness. Yeah, because you've got the light of life living within you. And then elsewhere in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me shall not live in darkness. When Satan possessed Judas and Judas betrayed Jesus, the Bible talks of it as being a dark, dark time. John chapter 13, verse 27 says, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was dark. It was night. 
And that just isn't describing, you know, a, just the fact that it was dark because it was night. It was a dark time. Have y'all ever been anywhere where you just like, the spiritual darkness just seemed to be rampant? I've been in some places, especially a particular country where one of our missionaries was serving at. And they still serve there, but, but we had some dear friends that were over there serving in that particular country. And I remember touching down on the airplane and just walking through the airport terminal there thinking, Good, great, I mean, just the overwhelming sense of spiritual darkness, none like I've ever experienced before in my life. Just everything seemed spiritually dark. When Jesus called Paul to preach, Jesus says, Paul, I want you to turn people away from the darkness of sin. Uh, and then Paul talks about that when he shares his testimony over in Acts, Acts chapter 26. Paul says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from your Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And, and then elsewhere, we see that Paul encouraged Christians, which is us, right, to abstain from living in spiritual darkness. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Paul equated darkness with spiritual lawlessness and with the sin of unbelievers over in 2 Corinthians where he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. And then he talks about spiritual warfare, Paul does. And he talks about the demonic forces of spiritual darkness. And we read about it in Ephesians chapter 6, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the principalities and the cosmic forces of this present darkness. And then switching from Paul to John, John reminded us that God himself is the antithesis of darkness. When we read over in 1 John 1 verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him, guess what? There is no darkness whatsoever. Little wonder, little wonder that places of sin are often marked by places of darkness. Ponder that, if you will. Places of sin is often marked by places of darkness. People don't want to be exposed to light when they're living in sin, in dark places. Uh, there again, Ephesians 5, verse 8, the Bible says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So that ought to tell me that if anything, if I get anything out of the message today, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm to live, chap, as a person that's walking in the light of Jesus Christ. If, if you're without Jesus, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're walking in darkness. And it was dark at Calvary, and maybe in your heart right now, you realize, hey, it's dark in my heart. But I, can I just tell you this? If you come to Jesus today, the light of Jesus Christ will come and shine through you and live through you. So if anything from this statement that we see Jesus make here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hope you see the picture, if you will. Of sin, But not only that, I want you to notice this, and that's the passion of Jesus. There again, verse 46, if your Bibles are still open, he cries out with a loud voice 
And I can imagine the pain that he was under when he cries out with this loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever noticed that the seven words that Jesus prays, three of them are prayers, and this is one of them. You know, he didn't cry out in prayer, you know, when they, when they beat him. He didn't cry out in prayer when, when, when they sped upon him or when they mocked him. He didn't cry out in agony in prayer when, when, when they nailed him to the cross. But when God the Father laid the inequity of us all upon him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that Jesus went through something similar over in the garden, over in the garden of Gethsemane. We, we read over in Matthew 26, Jesus' words, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. So he tells the disciples that were with him, hey, remain here and, and watch with me and pray. And then going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will be done. And then we get another, and Luke kind of gives us a little more of a description here as to what Jesus is praying. We read in Luke chapter 22 that when Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, only a doctor can say that, you know, about a stone's throw. That's how far Jesus went from them. Jesus knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, Luke says, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus at this point in his life there in the garden was praying so fervently. He was so stressed over what he was facing, so upset over what was going to be happening to, to him that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Can I just tell you something? Don't ever get to that point in your life where your sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. You say, oh, is there really such a thing like that? Yeah, modern doctors call it, and I may butcher this, but here it is, hematidrosis. It's a real thing. It's rare. But if a person is under just enough stress, tiny blood vessels in their skin can rupture, causing bleeding to occur just under the skin. That's where your sweat glands are, right? So it appears that you're sweating drops of blood. Leonardo da Vinci actually talked about a soldier who had went through a battle, uh, appeared to have bloody sweat, if you will. Others have suffered the same phenomenon when facing torture or ongoing abuse so clearly this is something, hematidrosis is a sign of overwhelming, life-threatening stress, the kind of stress that will break the strongest of men. So in the language of that particular hour, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Lord, may this cup pass from me. The writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews. I mentioned Barnabas a few minutes ago. I would love to know when I get to heaven one day, the Barnabas will say, hey, I wrote Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but I kind of like to think Barnabas did. He's one of my heroes. But the writer of Hebrews said in 5 verse 7 that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. That's the passion. Y'all with me? That's the passion of our Savior crying out to God. He's drinking the cup of wrath. There's other cups, symbolic cups in Scripture, the cup of blessings, the cup of praise, the cup of salvation, but this is the cup of wrath, and Jesus is drinking it. I would encourage you, in your pain and in your suffering, in your hard times, cry out to God. It's just what Jesus did. 
In his greatest moment of agony, Jesus cries out to God, the Father. We see the passion of the Savior. But then thirdly, we see the prophecies of Scripture. And I want you to know here, if you, if you don't have this marked in your Bibles, mark down here Psalms 22 because Jesus is, is quoting Scripture here. And with that, I want you to turn with me over to Psalms 22. And I'd um, love to hear your Bibles flipping the pages over there. But Psalms 22, and I want to finish up by looking here at this portion of God's Word. Psalms 22, the first two verses, this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is a psalmist writing in Psalms 22, what Jesus is quoting when he was on the cross. And in this psalm, I want you to think of what Jesus is going through because we see some things from this particular psalm that concerns the prophecies of scripture being fulfilled one of the things we see is the sacredness of god an old preacher once put it this way he said that he said jesus was really saying this my god my god for this i was kept and that preacher was using a syriac translation but the hebrew is very clear the greek is very clear the aramaic is very clear regardless of what language you're having to use jesus is saying my god my god why have you forsaken me why because god is holy we serve a holy God, and because he is holy, he cannot look upon sin. Even the sin that his own son bore for me and for you. Y'all with me? Say amen if you are. Stay with me. Gosh, please stay with me. So, so we see the sacredness of God here. He's a holy God, but then we see man's sarcasm. Can we be sarcastic? I think some people, that's their spiritual gift, is sarcasm. But none of y'all. It's people that are going to other places, but not you guys. But we see man's sarcasm here in Psalms 22. Remember how I said earlier in a prayer, we can laugh? That's the place that we can laugh at. Anyway, Psalms 22, we see man's sarcasm here. And, and they're basically, beginning in verse 6 and following, they're making fun of Jesus. Uh, the psalmist writes in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, you was I cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Can I just pause right there to say this? When Jesus is on the cross, most of the people around him were, were Jewish folks. You had the Roman soldiers there as well, but most of the people there that were, a lot of them were Jewish folks. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They don't know particularly that it's Psalms 22 that he's quoting, but that, because there was no thing, such thing as scripture verses and chapters in that day, but they knew Jesus, oh, wait a minute, he, he's over in Psalms. He's, he's quoting what we know today as Psalms 22 here, if you will. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. What we see here in Psalms 22 is exactly what's taking place when Jesus is on the cross. So we see how man can be so sarcastic, but then not only do we see that, we see this as well. Whoops, we see Messiah suffering. Got ahead of myself. I'll just stay there. But we see the Messiah suffering. He suffered physically. He suffered spiritually. Verse 14 of Psalms 22, Jesus says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Joint, No bone of Jesus was broken when he was on the cross. But can I tell you something? I can bet you bottom dollar that his joints were all out of whack. Mm. All out of joint. 
Then the Bible says, my heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. Later on, as you know, a Roman soldier would pierce the side of Jesus and outpour blood and water. Cardiologists have said they, they believe that, that Jesus' heart was beating so rapidly and so violently that when he died, the sack of fluid around his heart just literally burst. So think about this. He literally gave his heart so that you can give him yours. And then in verse 15 of Psalms 22, we read, My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. So, so when on the cross, I mean, anybody on the cross could barely breathe. I mean, if you wanted to breathe, I mean, you're, 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 you're parched, you're, you're needing something to drink, but to breathe and to catch your breath, you had to push yourself up on those nails and pull yourself up excruciating pain only to catch a breath here so Jesus is like saying my mouth is parched I'm thirsty then verse 16 for dogs encompass me a company of evil duels encircles me so Jesus is he's dying on the cross for our sins and everybody around him according to Psalms 22 is just talking trash putting him down then the Bible says they pierced my hands and my feet now what's interesting the psalmist wrote this hundreds of years before crucifixion ever took place. Back in the psalmist's day, they would impale criminals, not crucify them. Hadn't even been invented yet. The crucifixion like we know. So here's what it shows us. It shows us that our God knows the future just like he knows the past. And then verses 17 and 18, I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And that's what they did with Jesus' outer tunic. All of this is prophesied, and it leads us to this redemptive success, if you will. This cross was a cross of victory. Y'all believe that? Yeah, it's a cross of victory. And we read about this in, in Psalms 22, verses 3 and 5. But then we read about it as well in verses 19 and following. And I'm not going to read all of it, but pick, with, pick up with me at verse 19. Because here's what Jesus says, but you, or what the psalmist says, and he's prophesying this in Scripture. It's, it's so cool. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. And on and on we can go. Jesus and the psalmist is basically saying, hey, this is not defeat. This is victory. Because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. But I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Amen? So when everybody thought this was surely defeat, Jesus is like saying, uh-uh, boys, this is, this is nothing but victory. And it was predicted in Scripture, the redemption that Jesus offers us. I'm almost finished. <laughs> so we talked about the prophecies of Scripture, but then look with me also at the penalty of sin here. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. So that you and I might be born again. So that you and I might be forgiven. So that you and I might be set free from our sins. So that the blood of Jesus could atone for my sin and for yours. That's why God forsook his son. And you say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. why the cross? Why the cross? There's no other way. 
It's predicted in Isaiah 53. We read in verses 4 through 6, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus, the inequity of us all. Aren't you glad he paid the penalty for your sin? Amen? Man, I sure am. Ezekiel prophesied it this way in, in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. Paul put it this way in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Our sin was so vile, it required not just any old blood sacrifice, but a sinless, spotless lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The only way for you and for me to, to, to bear the righteousness of God is for Jesus to bear our unrighteousness. Y'all with me? We read in 1 Peter 2 verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. I mean, how else can we say it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the penalty of sin. It's the penalty for my sin. It's the penalty of, of your sin. My God, my God, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? So we see in these little words of Jesus the picture of sin. see the passion of our Savior. There's one last thing I want you to see, and that's the pattern for suffering. I have decided to follow Jesus. It's one of my favorite invitational hymns. Follow Jesus, the sign says out front when people were leaving our campus on Friday. A Christian is to be a follower of Christ. Right? Hey, can I just tell you this? I love being a Southern Baptist. We are not a perfect denomination. But, but in terms of missions, I mean, I think nobody does it better. That's a song as well. Nobody, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah y'all know that song too, don't you? I mean, but we really are good. To know, we got so many good things going for us. And while I would love to say, Tom, hey, Rod's the preacher of a Southern Baptist church, I want to be known as a follower of Christ more than anything else. And as a follower of Christ, that means sometimes I might even have to suffer just like my Christ suffered, Right? So sometimes we're even called to suffer, just like Jesus. On his 39th birthday, poet Christian Wyman was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. And he wrote about his um, agonizing effects of his illness and his treatments this way. He said, I have had bones die and bowels fail, joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, I couldn't even walk. I have passed through pain I could never imagine, pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in ashes alone. This is a, a guy named Christian Wyman. 39th birthday, diagnosed with cancer. When the diagnosis came, uh, he was a rising star in the literary world. Now, I'm not one for poetry, but he was known for that. And he confessed that his Christian faith had evaporated uh, in the blast of modernism and secularism to which he was exposed to in college 
but the diagnosis started him on a journey back to God. He said, it wasn't a particular doctrine that drew me back to faith, but I found a friend in the suffering Messiah. He says, I'm a Christian today because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The point is that God is with us and he's not beyond us in our suffering. He says, I'm a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that the absolute solitary and singular nature of extreme human pain is an illusion. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. I am suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around the individual in his suffering. In the face of brutal, isolating pain, we don't rely or we don't really want answers. We want a person. And at such times, there is simply no substitute for the presence of Christ. Some of y'all can attest to that. He goes on to say, I have heard and I can attest that there is no substitute for the presence of Christ in the midst of my suffering. You say, well, well, what in the world does that have to do with me today? Rod, what can I take away from this message that you shared this morning from God's Word? Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, th there's a, a pattern when it comes to our suffering. And one of the things that God uses suffering for is to expose your sin. Not all of your suffering is because of your sin, but can I tell you something? Some of your suffering is because of your sin. So God, God can use suffering to expose your sin. He can also use your suffering to build godly character. Suffering develops contentment for you when you're really in, in need. Suffering can produce steadfastness. It can produce endurance in your life. And another thing that God can use suffering to do is not only to build your character and expose your sin, but to produce much good in your life. I mean, God can use your suffering for good. I mean, it gives you an opportunity to show that, that hey, um, I'm going to care for others even in the midst of my own suffering. God can somehow use your suffering to produce good. And then something else that God can use suffering for is to change your perspective. It, it can reveal Jesus to you in a way that you've never seen him before. I'll tell you what, from people I've seen and read about that have gone through times of suffering, suffering produces in them such a great desire for heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. And then another thing, way that God can use suffering is to bless your future. Suffering can prove that your faith is genuine. Now, now let me say this, and, and then I'll close. Does God care deeply, or does God care about your suffering? <laughs> deeply. Deeply, he does. This is what he does. Psalms 34, verse 7, this is what Jesus does for you. He encamps around you in the midst of your suffering. The angel of the Lord, Psalms 34, 7 says, encamps all around those who fear him and he delivers them. So whenever you're suffering, know that God's going to encamp all around you in the midst of your suffering. And I pray that you see him there. Something else that God can do is from Psalms 34, 18, is that it's when you're suffering and when you're brokenhearted, guess who's there with you? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then something else God can do for you in your suffering is he keeps a record of your grief and he puts away your tears. Psalms 56, verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings and you put tears in your bottle. Word of suffering. Let me ask you to bow your head, every head bowed and every eye closed. And we're going to close our time together this morning and I want to share something with you and that you just use this time to get along with the Lord and I'll be as brief as I can.
But I want to tell you how I used to read scripture and how I used to read this particular verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, oftentimes when we come to scripture, we read it with a Western mindset. And reading it with a Western mindset, it's easy for us to surmise that God has forsaken Jesus at this point when he's on Calvary's cross. He's a holy God. He's not going to look upon sin. But remember, this we need to read the scriptures oftentimes with an eastern mindset as a Jewish person would and reading it as a Jewish person would when Jesus said my God my God why have you forsaken me if I was a devout Jewish person and I may not have had a Bible in my pocket or a scroll in my pocket at the day but I would have known being brought up in a devout Jewish home hey Jesus is referring to Psalms 22 remember Psalms 23 is the Lord is my shepherd and some of you are finishing the sentence for me, I shall not want. But if you were a devout Jewish person, when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking you back to Psalms 22. He's letting everybody know, even at the cross, this is his last lecture. Remember, they call him rabbi, which means teacher. This is his last lecture, his last lesson, if you will, as a teacher. On the cross, dying for your sins and for mine. And he's taking them back to Psalms 22, and he's letting them know, I am your shepherd got some bad shepherds and those bad shepherds that have not led you have me up on the cross here but I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep and I want you to think about this saying of Jesus when he was on the cross God the Father is not forsaking him like we maybe have often thought with our western ideals and mindset he didn't forsake Jesus on the cross in the same way he's not going to forsake you he didn't forsake Moses when Moses was the leader of the slaves and they challenged Pharaoh. He was with Joshua. He didn't forsake Joshua. When Joshua led them into the frightening days of when they took the promised land. He was with David when he fought Goliath. He didn't forsake David when he was faced with this giant in his life. He was with Hezekiah and Isaiah when Jerusalem was surrounded. He was with Jeremiah when the exiles saw Jerusalem lying in ruins. He was with Daniel fire furnace. He didn't forsake them. Your friends, he will not forsake you. If Psalms 22 has anything to say about the cross, here we read in Matthew's gospel this morning, it says that God the Father didn't forsake God the Son. And Matthew tells you something for those of you that are here with us today and watching us online, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will not forsake you. Come to May this be the day of your salvation. Father God, thank you so very much for going to the cross for us. We praise you and we bless you today, Heavenly Father, for doing that, for going through suffering so that we never would have to. Thank you for bearing my sins and the sins of all of those in this place today on Calvary's cross for us, for giving us hope, for giving us eternal life, for giving us the promise of life. Lord, my prayer today is that you would draw people to yourself. sing a closing song. I know the hour's late. I've gone over the hour, but anyway, you'll still you'll still beat the Methodist to the restaurants, okay? But if God's laid a decision upon your heart, you feel like you need to respond publicly, this is the time to do it. And I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. If, if God's bringing you every Sunday, it seems like for weeks or for months now to this church, and you never have officially joined us, hey, you're, you're a part of this already. You're part of the family of God. You're a Christian. Amen. But if he continually brings you here, why don't you be a part of this church? Say, hey, I'm going to live.
live out my life with Jesus here in Sherrall, the greater Sherrall for this church. Maybe some of you can come to this altar and say, Lord, it's been a long time since I acknowledge how much you've suffered for me on Calvary's cross. Lord, I praise you for that and humble yourself by coming to this altar and just thanking him for that. There's something powerful that just one person does it. It starts a wave of people just praising God at the altar. Never give your heart to Jesus. Meet me down front. Meet Trey down front. Help us help you. Let us help you begin a life. That's awesome. Let's respond as we say. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. 